welcome to Diverse Tech Founders, a podcast about the one thing older than capital, people like you and me. Now here's your host, Abraham J. Williamson. Ooh, you took us to, to class here. Not surprising either because you are a professor. Yeah, so uh, no surprises there. And actually, it's funny you should mention Clayton Christensen, the late Clayton Christensen, and also the Innovator's uh, Solution and Dilemma because I have that in my backpack right now. Actually, Innovator Solution, and I haven't gotten to that point yet, but yeah. am determined to finish the book for the reasons that you mentioned. That's, that's the most important lesson. That's the most important lesson in that book, in, in my opinion. That's a lot of great stuff in there. And let's try to make this a bit more like real life, practical, your math and physics background. Hopefully we can go straight to the numbers here. And this isn't forward looking or saying what people should do. But in the past or in a hypothetical situation, when you look at a founder who, let's say they have access to a million dollars. I was recently talking to one of my colleagues who's actually up here, by the way. Mm-hmm. And so then usually when startups get money, they're going to use it on one of three things. They're going to use it on tech. They're going to use it on legal. They're going to use it on marketing. Of course, you need to build your team. But those three buckets are what are on people's minds. When you look at that, one, do you think that's true or not? And two, how should somebody go about thinking about the million dollars or how have you seen it been put to use in positive ways? If you're a technology startup, I would say invest most of it in your technology. And the reason is that if technology is fundamental to how you create value, then that's what you want to invest it in. Now, when I say invest it in your technology, right, it's between the technology itself and the people who create that technology, right? So some of it might be to pay engineers. The reason I don't think investing in marketing is the way to go, because what do you have to market if you don't have something that creates value, right? If you don't have something that there's nothing to market, I mean, you'll be putting yourself in this emperor has no clothes type of situation if marketing is what you, you invest in. And then what was the uh, what was the third one? Well, legal, but we don't have to get into that. But yeah, I'd invest most of it in the in the technology. This is good. This is really good, and I've noticed that a lot of people really struggle sometimes with how they go about managing their technology spend, their technology debt. And it seems even in the last five years that the ability to have these initial low code or no code solutions is more or less more accessible for people. So let me make this a little bit simpler. It seems like it's less expensive today to get an initial technology product out there. If you're a VC looking at a startup founder, how do you take that into account? And how do you evaluate whether or not a founder is using their tech spin wisely? I think about economic modes a lot and it would have been Almost impossible for you to have dug this up. But in 2016, I wrote a series of blog posts on economic moat. So an economic moat is, at least the way that I define it, a feature of a startup's business model is innate to that startup. It protects the startup from competition today, but gives the startup a huge advantage in the future. And the economic mode is dynamic. It's evolving. 
it's getting better. It's not static. When some people hear economic mode, they're like, oh, that's just, it's an imperfect, it's an imperfect metaphor or analogy or whatever the right term is. Now, because we're, you know, early stage investors, I'm not expecting the mode to exist at the point where we invest. But I spend a lot of time thinking if this founder, if this startup is successful, if everything goes their way, is an economic mode eventually going to develop? Will this thing be more valuable 10 years from now than it is today? And if the answer is yes, and the market is big enough, then I want to invest. If it's a big market, this is for someone else. So I'll give an example. 15 minute delivery. Amazing. Who doesn't want their stuff delivered to them in 15 minutes? I would like my stuff delivered to me in 15 minutes. It sounds amazing. Especially if it's not that expensive because some VC somewhere is subsidizing the cost. The problem is, depending on your business model, it doesn't scale efficiently. Your costs scale in direct proportion to the size of your business. So ever invest in something like that. And then, oh, it's difficult to determine if there's any kind of IP that you can use to, to protect the business of that nature. And so, you know, we see a lot of 15 minute delivery startups. Oh my God, this is amazing logistics technology. And yeah, no, not for us. That is good. Sounds like you have learned a lot since you made it to New York City to the area, right? Like yeah. you've been picking up a lot since business school and all of that good stuff. So what are you most excited about in New York's local tech startup ecosystem? You know, on the other side of the country, Silicon Valley has always been sort of the preeminent space, but New York is, is quickly, quickly gaining ground. So talk about what you're most excited about in this particular ecosystem. So I really think, and I'm, I'm trying to persuade someone with some influence in city government or state government to get the government and the private sector to team up, to plant a flag in the ground and to claim supply chain technology as something that is quintessentially New York. Just because... Like I said, if you think about where things are heading in the world, supply chain technology is going to become more and more important, right? Geopolitical tensions are increasing, climate change is getting worse, and so we're going to continue having severe weather events that disrupt uh, supply chains everywhere, and people keep being more demanding, right? 15 minute grocery, right? That whole phenomenon is one example. And I can't think of a better environment in which to road test these innovations than New York, right? So, so supply chains are complex. There's finance, there's legal, there's culture, there's uh, people, there's technology, there are all these things. There's marketing, and all those things are in New York, right? The best financial minds in the world, some of them are in New York. The best legal minds in the world, some of them are in New York some of the best engineering schools in the world. A lot of them are in New York. So I really think that New York has the potential to say, look, if you are a supply chain technology innovator in any part of the world, and you get to the point where you really want to stress New York, and that's one of the reasons why we started the meetup and why it's grown into a federation of meetups with chapters starting to spring up. 
in other parts of the world. Talk about the uh, the attraction and how it's grown because the meetup is not just in New York. It's all over. It's all over. It's all over the place. When I'm feeling myself, as Lisa, my partner, will say, when when arrogant Brian shows up, he says. Yeah, we have members on every continent except Antarctica. We're working, we're working on, we're, we're working on Antarctica as we speak. No, but it's, it's interesting because again, when in August of 2017, when I first said I'm going to start, well, actually, I started it and then I told people, I was like, yeah, I started a supply chain meetup, you should join. I was like, why would anyone want to go to a supply chain meetup? Like, that's one of the dumbest ideas I've ever heard. So I, I, I started the meetup because I wanted to hang around supply chain and people who are enthusiastic about supply chain and technology. And I remember I started it a day past and no one else had joined. So I called Lisa. We were friends then. I said, Lisa, you have to join this meetup I started so that I can truthfully say to people that our membership has increased by 100%. And then will you help me build it? And she said, yes. Fast forward, we announced we're going to hold our first event, our first meetup in November and 150 people showed up, standing room only. It was incredible. The AC went off at nine and people didn't want to leave. We were sweating. People were sweating and the, the building security had to kick us out. Now it's uh, the New York chapter is 2,900 members. Around the world, we have 4,400 plus members. It turns out that building a community is really hard work. If I knew what I know now, I might not have I might not have started it. And so people have said, hey, we want to start a meetup, and then they realize how much work it is, and they pull back. But the thing I found out from studying how other communities developed, so for example, Creative Mornings, Startup Grind, even TED, they go through a really rough period in the beginning. And then if you stay alive for long enough, things turn around and you start to. And so, you know, when people have said, oh, my God, this is so hard. You don't have any corporate sponsors yet. And, you know, you've been doing this all on your own. I'm like, yeah, that is what I expected. I think it will be four or five years where we're just like trying to figure this out. And if we survive that period, then there's a possibility that it grows. And if we don't survive, you know, then we don't survive. Yeah. So New York has been good to you. If we had to pick you up and place you, plop you in another city anywhere on the planet other than Silicon Valley area, where would that be? Lagos, Nigeria. Tell us why. Talk about that. When I first arrived in the United States and I was at Connecticut College, you know, my schoolmates were like, oh my God, Brian, you have to go to New York. It's crazy. It's insane. It's like... Oh my God, it's like, go, 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 go. <laughs> the first time I came to New York, I was like, wait, what? Is this what, is this what you people? I was like, you guys haven't seen anything. I mean, New York is nicer, right? New York is, is nicer, better infrastructure and whatnot. But in terms of just like, if you aren't on your toes, you're going to get run over. There's nothing like Lagos. I tell people, if you can survive in Lagos, everything else is a piece of cake. 
And I used to travel through Lagos on my own as a teenager because my in Ghana. And so from age 12 to when I finished my A-levels and uh, started working before I came to college. During the summer vacations, I had to make my way to see them by myself. And I'd go through Lagos. I mean, there was one time I arrived in Lagos and there was a military coup and martial law had been. And so I'm in the taxi and we get pulled over by like five, maybe six armed men, soldiers carrying AK-47s. Taxi driver lost his mind. I was like 14 years old. I had to deal with these soldiers because <laughs> he, was, he was incoherent. I was like, you are going to get us killed. Go stand at the front of the car. Let me deal. Let me deal with. Let me deal. Let me deal with this before you get us shot. <laughs> yeah, it would be Lagos. What would you say to somebody who has never been, has no idea what you're talking about, and going to Lagos, the experience, what to get out of it, how to navigate it? Because I feel like that is very common. If you ask ten people in our community. They're gonna say Lagos is a place you gotta go, but what does that mean? How, how, how would you introduce someone to Lagos who's never been? Definitely have someone who knows the city, have someone who knows their way about it. Keep your wits about you and keep your wits about you. It's interesting because I told you my parents sent me off to boarding school at age 12. The night before I left, you know, they sat us down, me, my two younger siblings, my mom and dad, and they were, okay, Brian, we're sending you off to boarding school. All the bits and pieces of advice that, that anxious parents would give their 12-year-old as they're sending him off. Um, I could never get in touch with them again until I came back a year later. Because the mail system wasn't working. We didn't have telephones. So, But the last thing my dad said to me that evening was, Brian, keep your wits about you all the time. And in Lagos especially... Like when I started traveling through Lagos on my own, I was like, I do need to keep my wits about me all the time. So I'll use an example. In Lagos, you encounter someone at customs and he'll be upfront with you. Look, life is difficult. Do something and you'll move through customs really quickly. In Ghana, the customs man is not going to tell you he's expecting a bribe. Instead, he'll waste your time and waste your time and waste your time. Which annoys me to no end. Like, just tell me you want a bribe and let me decide if I want to give you this bribe or not. <laughs> Instead of, like, wasting my time. So that's, that's one of the issues that I think is a bit of a difference. That in Lagos, the, uh, the potential to be ripped off is, is, really, is really high. Got it. And if I may, it does seem like, just generally speaking, you're speaking about a competitive spirit that finds itself in a lot of different situations. In, in Lagos, you need to, like, you need to be ready to compete. You need to be ready to compete. I'll give you an example. When people have asked me, who do you think is likely to win the World Cup? Which African country do you think is likely to win? As much problems as they have in administering football, just because the competitive drive that Nigerians have is unmatched by any other group of, of, of Africans. Get a group of Nigerians together, provide them the resources, 
And they firmly believe that they can go toe-to-toe with anyone. They can go toe-to-toe with Brazil, with Germany, with anyone. Now, like I said, there are a lot of issues that ensure that the Nigerian uh, soccer team will underperform most times. But when all the ingredients come together in the right way at the right time, they're very difficult to. I crack a joke that I have the friendliness of a Ghanaian and the arrogance of a Nigerian. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> and then when then when then when my Nigerian friends hear that, they're like, Brian, come on, it's not arrogance. It's confidence. It's confidence. It's not arrogance. It's confidence. I'm like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, you and I know the true story. <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair enough thank you for taking us around the world with, with that commentary for sure i might agree with you though on the on the football front switching gears a little bit although it's kind of in the same area based on our earlier conversation uh, before we started this recording if you were to seek inspiration from a particular artist on any given day which artists are you going into? Like, which artist most inspires the work that you do or gets you in the zone where you perform at your apex? So last night, I watched the first two episodes of How to Change Your Mind. It's a series on Netflix. It's about psychedelics. And that picture on the wall, the woman with three eyes, immediately took me back to the two episodes I watched. The first one was on LSD. The second one was on psilocybin. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the thing that I think I took away from those two episodes is that those substances somehow open people's minds in a way that did not happen before they ingested the substances. I'm constantly trying to connect to my intuition, to listen to my intuition, to to listen to my instinct. Love that. And I think it's because I've been away from my parents for so long. I quickly realized, you know, if you're going to be traveling through Lagos as a 12-year-old on your own, not even at Lagos, from Wa to Accra, then Accra to Lagos, then Lagos to Kano, all on your own back to what my dad said keep your wits about you you really have to listen to your instinct right if your instinct tells you that this grown-up who's trying to make me do something is not someone to trust like there's no like don't trust that person (laughs) right don't don't hold the bag that they're asking you to hold because who knows what's in the bag okay right there real quick though because a lot of us fight our intuition and our instincts yeah, we have no. a tendency to yeah. not want to listen to no them no i'm all about listening to my intuition in fact there was a time when i thought that founders would leave my first meeting with them thinking he's kind of weird because i am less paying attention to what it is they're saying about what they do and trying to like What's my intuition telling me about this person? Is this someone I can trust? Is this someone that 
I would want to work for? Is this someone that other people would want to work for? Is this a fundamentally good person, right? If we invest, are we going to find ourselves in situations that we didn't sign up for? So the first meeting, that's what I'm usually trying to get. And then all the other stuff, like what your technology does and whatnot, I can read something, I can research it, I can, can tell me. So there's that. Growing up, I listened to a lot of Bob Marley because, again, because I left home at 12, I didn't have my parents around to give me advice. And I found that I've always loved Bob Marley um, since I was a kid. In fact, when I was 10 years old, the only gift that cassette, a video cassette of him in concert. And I found that if I listened to the lyrics of his music, I could turn that into advice about, you know, don't give up when things get difficult. Have a sense of courage. Stand up for people who are less fortunate than you are. Fight against injustice when you see it. And, and it's within your power to do so. Yeah, I mean, I could go through. I could go through every Bob no, Marley song. I could that's go good. through. So Bob Marley is probably who I would, who I would say I take inspiration from. There's one last thing. Uh, I can't remember who it was. I think it is. Um, I can't remember the name. Is is one of these Italian, Italian greats. One of these Italian artists, and he said, if people knew how hard he had to work in order to produce the work he produces. No one would think he's a genius. I can't remember, but, but basically, yeah, he, he says, you know, to other people, it's like this comes with no effort. And, but, you know, behind the scenes, he's working himself to death. Sheesh. And that, that rings very true to me because uh, my son says I'm always working. <laughs> Spe- <laughs> my son says I'm always working. Speaking of hard work, it will hopefully lead to continued success and growth for Refashion Ventures. Hopefully. We ask this question of nearly everyone who comes mm-hmm. into the studio, but fashion differently based on their, their role and perspective. Do you want to run a billion-dollar fund? Why or why not? Yes. Yes. And that's because the opportunity is so big. Now, the specifics of how you deploy that capital, right? That has to be that has to be studied and understood. You know, maybe not all of it is deployed at the early stage. But it, just like I told you, like $100 trillion of global GDP entirely dependent on supply chains. And so a billion dollars is <laughs> a billion dollars isn't does he mean that all hundred trillion dollars represents a venture backable or venture scale opportunity? Of course not. Not all of it is, is a venture scale opportunity. But that's why LPs would invest in a fund like ours, because we wake up every day and until we go to sleep at night, and even while we're sleeping, we're thinking about where the venture scale opportunities are and how to invest in those opportunities before other people discover them. Yeah, it's hard to beat somebody who's thinking while they're sleeping. That's, that's I, I mean, I, I literally, I wake up at 2.30 a.m., 3 a.m., and I'm like, I think I got it. 
I think I think I think I got it. This is why we should not invest in that startup. Well, this is why we should invest. And then I'm talking to Lisa in the morning. We have a daily team call uh, at eleven every day. I'm like Lisa, you know, I woke up at three a.m. and I and she was like, oh my god, Brian. <laughs> But then she does the same thing too. She does the same thing. She does the same thing too. Well, if you're listening right now, your pitch needs to be nocturnal friendly, nocturnal ready. Does it feel like we've come sort of to the tail end of our, our conversation? We've been speaking for over an hour yeah, now, but it's been really yeah, good. Time yeah, has flown. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I'll tell you something that will blow your mind. But my friend, my friend Catherine, um, who's an LP in the fund as well, she runs a Genius Guild. Before Genius Girl, she was running an organization called uh, Digital Undivided, and they had a big incubator in Atlanta. One time she asked me, hey, Brian, will you come down and, you know, talk to our, our entrepreneurs in I hate traveling, but for Catherine, I got on the plane, went to Atlanta, got there at about 10 a.m., started talking about you know startups business models technology venture capital etc talked so much that i skipped lunch i don't think i ate dinner talked till catherine was like okay brian it's 11 p.m we have to leave like i was talking the entire <laughs> i was talking the entire time <laughs> talking to groups talking to the founders one-on-one, -on -one, then talking to groups again, then one-on-one. -on -one. I was like, wait, have I been talking for 12 hours? Yes, Brian, you've been talking for 12 hours, non-stop. <laughs> wow. Uh, that is... That is a skill. And I'm glad we we condensed it down here for you all. So you got 12 hours worth of content. Some of your listeners are freaking out. They're like, oh my God, is Abraham going to let this guy keep talking for 12 hours? We got one more question for you, but it's a powerful one. And you might have described it in no uncertain terms, but we'd like for you to just tell us in your own words again for that recency effect. What is the most valuable thing that Refashion Ventures and you do for both your portfolio companies and your LPs? Supply chain technology, the way that we define it is an emerging area. You can think of us as pioneers. And so rather than them trying to recreate the experience that Lisa and I have uh, created uh, and gained over the years, they can invest in the fund and learn by being being LPs in the fund. For our founders, you know, like I told you, the fund is small. But we've invested in some Series B companies. We've invested in Natural Fiber Welding's $85 million Series B. We've invested in Leaf Logistics $37 million Series B. We've invested in Axel Payments $30 million Series B. And when I'm talking about when I'm talking about those investments, people like lose track and they're like, oh, so you do what? You put like a million dollars in those. I'm like, no, our entire fund, our entire fund is like a million bucks. We're not putting, we're not putting the entire fund in one, in one company. It's 25K and they're like, well, why would someone network? You talked about network. We have a network that, you know, I put our network up against anyone else's network. 
we dig deep into understanding the problem that they're solving. And some founders have told us, one, you understand what we're doing better than anyone else on our cap table, even people who've been on the cap table for years. And you can explain it to other people in a way that no one else, even better than the founders <laughs> themselves sometimes, right? Because as a founder, you get caught in all the details and you're talking in jargon and whatnot. And we can say, okay, we get that. But for the general public to understand why what you're doing is important, here's how you need to talk about it. And then, and then the final one is because supply chain technology is all that we do, we understand where there might be bumps in the road. And so where a generalist investor might, you know, start developing cold sweats and begin running for the hills. We're like, yeah, we suspected this might happen. Take a deep breath. Here are some alternatives that should help us get around it. Love that. And especially because it seems like Regardless of check size, being a value-add investor gets people's attention. I try not to describe ourselves as a value-add investor. Why? Please speak on that. We are just being who we are. The determination of if we add our founders will tell us if we're adding value. And so I don't... Like I say, look, we're going to be your most enthusiastic, most committed investors, right? We're going to be with you all the way, come hell or high water. That's what we can promise. Whether we add value, I think that's for I think that's for our founders. I think that's for our founders to see. Now that is some balance right there, because we saw arrogant Brian. Now we're seeing super super humble Brian. I like that a lot. Complete person, full renaissance version of you. I love it. People don't like anyone who's arrogant all the time. So if you're going to get people to, to, to fall in love with you, you have to blend. You have to mix and blend. Well, you've been dropping gems. I think this is a good place to end it. So I've enjoyed this conversation, learned a lot. And much of what you said kind of snuck up on us a little bit. We got some... Some very good stories out of you, but we're very grateful to have you in the studio this time around. It's been a pleasure. Looking forward to, to dropping this one, but we will let you have the last word. It's something we talked about a little bit when we chatted on the phone about, and I don't remember the quote exactly. I, I probably have it on my phone, but we don't have time. Uh, but it's about intimacy and how a lot of the issues we struggle with uh, because we haven't learned how to be appropriately intimate with one another. And so, you know, we walk around playing games and putting on this facade of ourselves or presenting a facade of ourselves to the world, which isn't helpful in any way. And that really stuck with me. And I think if there's, if there's something I want to leave listeners with, not only interacting with one another in a way that's more meaningful, but hopefully solving some of the problems that each of us is grappling with in a way that is more meaningful, more sustainable, and potentially more satisfying. Love that. Thank you for, for coming you. in here. Congratulations on the launch Thank of your fund and making investments. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely be watching. And until next time, we bid you adieu. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining this week on Diverse Tech Founders with Abraham J. Williamson. 
If you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. You can do it right now.